Welcome to the first podcast in the Pain Coach series. These podcasts address the FDA's Opioid Analgesic REMS Education Blueprint. Listen as Dr. Catherine Galuzzi, Professor and Chair of the Philadelphia College of Osteopathic Medicine's Department of Geriatrics and Palliative Medicine, and Dr. Keila Herr, Kelting Professor of Nursing and Associate Dean of Faculty at the University of Iowa College of Nursing, discuss the basics of pain management. Our focus today is on the older adult population, and we've prepared this series with an understanding of how critical a comprehensive pain management program is for many older adults. Let's be honest, we are facing an opioid crisis in this country, and some of the unwanted fallout from that is that patients who legitimately need pain management with opioids are not able to get it. So we are seeing, on occasion, senior citizens who are either being undertreated for pain or not treated at all. So today we want to think about some special considerations specifically for older adults when pain management involves opioid use. So Keila, it's so nice to talk with you again. Thanks, Kate. Well, how about if we start by considering why healthcare professionals who care for older adults need a comprehensive education in pain management. Can you share some of your insights? Sure, I'm happy to. It's really important to understand that pain is a significant prevalent problem in older adults with anywhere from 25 to 85% experiencing chronic pain, depending on the setting in which they're receiving care. So pain is a big problem. Managing pain is challenging enough with this population. But when working with opioids, there are additional challenges and concerns that we need to be aware of. Given the current opioid crisis, concerns have been raised regarding appropriate use, particularly for chronic pain. And it's a topic that definitely needs discussion so clinicians are better prepared to provide safe, effective care. There are also unique risks and vulnerabilities of older adults related to opioids because of the physical and cognitive changes that occur with aging and the multiple chronic conditions that occur requiring polypharmacy, making older adults more vulnerable to adverse effects for any medication, let alone opioids. We also know that opioids have less systemic risk, so it makes them an important option for some older adults given that NSAIDs and other pain medications can also be risky in that population. We also know that the incidence of misuse and opioid overdose deaths in older adults is not that high, but numbers suggest that that might be increasing. So it's important for providers to pay attention and put in place practices that are going to keep patients safe. Although pain is not expected with aging, conditions that are known to be painful are more common, such as musculoskeletal problems like arthritis, low back pain, and neurological conditions such as diabetic neuropathy, shingles, post-stroke syndrome. Pain is very likely to occur um, and needs to be carefully addressed because it impacts quality of life. Older adults do have unique vulnerabilities that need to be taken into consideration and education of providers related to these changes and risks is an important part of uh, being prepared to take care of this vulnerable population. Akila, I think that's a great summary. And, you know, we talk about the silver tsunami of seniors, people over age 65, but 
even more importantly, the population over the age 85 is the fastest growing cohort throughout the industrialized world. These are the individuals who are going to be experiencing development accumulation of painful conditions and comorbidities that are going to make use of medications somewhat problematic. So I'm very glad that we have this opportunity to talk about this important problem. I think we would like to share with our listeners some vignettes of individuals we've known, older individuals who have had chronic pain. Someone who comes to mind is a 68-year-old male with chronic back pain. Hank is a 68-year-old retired machinist who lives at home with his wife and enjoys golfing and road trips to visit his grandchildren in a neighboring state. I've had back pain off and on for a long time, probably since my early 40s. I don't really know if I injured my back like at work or if it just happened because of just wear and tear over time. I had a pretty physical job. Anyway, I would throw my back out sometimes. Lots of times I didn't even know why. So, my back pain's been flaring up more and more often, to the point now where it hurts pretty much all the time. I've tried stretching, I've tried exercises, I've tried taking aspirin and acetaminophen and naproxen. I've tried pain patches and ice and heat. None of it seems to even make a dent in the pain. I'm struggling to keep up with household chores, and I've canceled my last three golf games. We were supposed to drive out to see my grandkids last week, but I'm just too uncomfortable to sit all that time in the car. So... Now, it's, it's not just the pain anymore. It's, it's about the frustration of not being able to do what I want to do most. Now, let's return to the discussion. At the point at which he sought pain management, he was really unable to maintain function without some form of intervention and analgesia. Keela, I, I think I shared with you, I have in my practice a, a lady in her 80s who I met in the intensive care unit almost 30 years ago because she was so anemic that she needed to be hospitalized. Rosemary is an 80-year-old patient with a 25-year history of fibromyalgia who was first diagnosed after being hospitalized with a GI bleed and a hemoglobin of 6 grams per deciliter. The bleed was apparently caused by use of over-the-counter ibuprofen to manage her chronic pain. I remember I was washing dishes at the sink. I was feeling lightheaded and weak. Then I guess I fainted. My husband told me that later. I woke up in the ICU. I guess it was kind of a blessing in disguise because finally I was able to talk to someone about the constant pain I was having. I'd never heard of fibromyalgia before then. I still have a lot of aches and pains, but I'm much better now. Back then, there were days I could barely get out of bed. Here I am, 25 years later. I just keep on going. I try to stay busy and active. I walk the dog every morning, and I do my household chores. My doctors have me on two different medicines. One is an anticonvulsant, and the other is an antidepressant. You see ads for it on TV. I'm not depressed, though. I use it for the pain, and it does seem to help. Let's see what else our experts may want to add. And not a surprise that she ended up in the ICU. 
And you know, what may be surprising is that she's done so well. Currently, you know, her pain is very well managed without opioids, um, but it does take the commitment of a team of providers to seek what exactly is going to work best for her. Well, and another example is Jane, who had breast cancer that had metastasized to her bone. Jane, an 88-year-old resident in assisted living, has breast cancer that has metastasized to her bones. Cognitively, she is sharp, but physically she's quite frail. Until recently, she had been able to ambulate with the front-wheeled walker, but over the past few weeks, she has been spending more time in her room because of the constant pain. My son got all worried about me. He bought me a wheelchair, which I really don't want to use. He insisted on taking me to the doctor. So we're at the appointment, and I asked the doctor, is there something you can do to help with this terrible pain? The doctor says, yes, of course, we have some options. She started to explain, but as soon as she said the word opioid, my son got very upset. He says, you're not going to do that to my mom. I listened to the news. There's no way that's going to happen. Let's hear what our experts have to say about this. It's always struck me as odd that even at the end of life, people are afraid of taking opioid medications when the ultimate goal is to just assure comfort. The risks in that population in particular are so low, it shouldn't be the priority. We should be focused on pain relief and quality of life. Part of what families may be feeling is in addition to their concerns about addiction, they also may have seen someone who died while taking opioids. And as you and I know, if somebody in palliative care or receiving hospice for a terminal illness, we will be using opioids to mitigate their pain and maybe even to manage their dyspnea. We use morphine quite effectively to help with respiratory symptomatology. So if they know a family member who was taking an opioid and they died, they may be attributing that death to the opioid, when in fact, the opioid did not cause the death. It's unlikely that it even hastened the death. It may have just eased the transition to dying. So I think these are very difficult areas to convey to families, and but it is really important that we recognize that stigma that does still attach to use of opioids. Now, Kate, I think it's also important to raise the point about untreated pain and how devastating that can be on function and quality of life. You know, there's plenty of studies that have documented that ineffectively managed pain in older adults can lead to impaired function, contribute to mood issues such as depression and anxiety, interfere with sleep and nutrition, and ability to engage in meaningful social recreational activities such as spending time with their grandchildren. It can cause cognitive impairment or worse cognitive impairment. These are really important elements of quality of life in older adult years. And so it's a careful balance of the risks and benefits of our treatment approaches. But the ultimate goal has to be management of pain to a level where older adults can achieve the goals that are important to them and have the best quality of life possible. Thank you for sharing that. Well, 
Another point is the old saw of the patient who comes in and says, you know, my right knee is killing me. It's, I, I can't bend it. I'm unable to go up and down stairs. And the clinician says, well, what do you expect at your age? Of course, your knee is bothering you. And the patient looks at the clinician and says, but my left knee feels fine. So it's important to turn the spotlight on some of our own biases about pain uh, and that pain is not to be expected as a natural part of aging. It's something that we as clinicians really do need to be able to address. Talking about expectations, an important point is that in our history recently, we clinicians have tried to convey that the goal is no pain. And now in this era of opioid misuse and abuse, we're reining back into what is realistic, and that is to lower pain to a level that allows the older person to do the things that are important to them in their life. That may not be a zero. That may be mild pain. I mean, that may be the best that we're able to accomplish, but we're not going to accept moderate to severe pain without continuing to tailor our treatment plan. And you know, one of the things I like to tell patients, and I feel strongly about this, having zero pain is not safe. We're going to talk about what is the biological significance of pain? Why do we have pain? Why is pain important? It's our early warning system. Do you agree? Absolutely. Um, And I was going to share as far as trying to differentiate acute pain from chronic pain. They are two different types of pain that warrant different treatment approaches. And so definitely acute pain is that warning sign. It usually starts suddenly, occurs from trauma or injury, bone, muscle, or organs, and typically resolves when the injury is healed. And that's very different from chronic pain, which serves no useful purpose and can actually be harmful because of the negative consequences mentioned earlier. Chronic pain is typically defined as pain that lasts for three to six months and is often linked to some long-term illness and often related to nerve damage. But Mm -hmm. also, often chronic pain does not have an identifiable etiology. I think about 30% of chronic pain, you can't put your finger on exactly what the cause is, which makes treatment very difficult because you can't sort out a specific target that can be addressed. Understanding the timing and duration of pain is really important to help determine what treatment options are going to be appropriate and to monitor changes and improvements in pain with acute pain when healing occurs and chronic pain over a longer period when the cause may not go away. Mm -hmm. I think of uh, chronic pain as a feedback loop that just is not able to be broken. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, the, the classic idea of slamming your fingers in the car door. What do people do? Well, they grab their hand, they grab their fingers, and and they're doing that because they're sending their brain a counter stimulus to say, look, yes, this was an acute pain event, but we are able to mitigate it, and oh, my hand is still here. You know, I think about that feedback loop with respect to how acute pain over time can become chronic pain through, you know, changes in the pain signaling in the brain and neuroplasticity. 
So I'm wondering whether you feel that chronic pain that has developed from abnormal central processing over time or neuroplasticity of the pain pathways is itself a diagnosis Yes, and I'm not the only one that believes that, um, and chronic pain is now um, within the ICD-9 codes, mm-hmm. and I think, but that's a big mind shift for clinicians and for patients to understand that chronic pain is in itself a disease state that needs management, not just as a symptom. That's a really important point. Well, how do you explain neuropathic pain? How is neuropathic pain different? And is it different from nociceptive pain? Yeah, they are two different types of pain that need to be differentiated because the treatments for each are different. So nociceptive pain originates from injury or impairment to muscles, joints, bones, or supportive tissues, um, including organ muscles like the heart, and develops when the nerve fibers are inflamed from chemicals or other physical events. Um, Compare that to neuropathic pain, which is damage to the somatosensory nervous system. So the central or peripheral nervous system is somehow damaged and results in um, abnormal sensations, descriptions of qualities of pain helps clinicians to differentiate if there might be nerve-related pain. So you can have ha- hyperalgesia, allodynia, where um, non-painful stimuli are painful, and different descriptions of pain, like um, numbness, tingling, burning, crawling on the skin. Those are all descriptors of neuropathic pain that helps to differentiate it from those susceptive pain. Um, You know, when I think about paresthesias, which are characteristic of neuropathic pain, when you try to explain that to someone, they're like, well, what, what do you mean? A feeling of something that isn't there? You know, ants crawling on my legs or fire burning my foot? You know, people have a hard time conceptualizing it. The example that I like to use is, have you ever sat on your foot or woken up with your foot asleep And that sensation is a paresthesia. And I think that helps people to understand because neuropathic pain can be devastating. You know, it can it can affect every level of your life, sleep and ability to remain physically fit. It can even affect nutritional status and can cause depression, anxiety, and certainly neuropathic and chronic pain have impacts on uh, social status, work status, intimacy, relationships, and so forth. So do you want to turn to pain assessment? We've talked about how patients may present with pain, but how do we assess pain in older individuals? What are some of the key steps? So to me, the pain assessment is probably the most important part of understanding what's going on with the older adult and their pain problem. A comprehensive assessment is required and that involves a a number of different aspects of information that needs to be collected. But one, the first thing is to understand the pain problem and how it is being experienced. You know, how severe is the pain? What is the quality of the pain? What is the duration, location? And Pulling that information out through conversation and interview is one approach. And then there are tools that help to quantify some of these elements. 
It is also important to look at the type of pain as we just talked about and its pattern. So trying to figure out if it's nociceptive, neuropathic, or mixed pain, which is also very common in the older adult. It's also important to understand related issues. That is, how does pain impact the person's ability to engage in activities that are important and meaningful to them? Understanding if pain is interfering with physical function, with psychological, emotional function, with relationships. Mm -hmm. Understanding this is really key because it's going to inform the goals that we're going to set um, and monitor over time. I think it's really also important in the comprehensive assessment to look at pharmacologic and other treatment history. You know, when you are taking care of an older person with a pain problem, this is not the first time they've had pain in their life. So what has worked for them before? You know, have they used heat, cold, What medications have they used? You know, often you'll uncover that older adults have tried opioids, for example, but had horrible side effects and they were not adherent. So then we're often told, well, that wasn't effective. It probably wasn't effective because they actually didn't complete the treatment in the way that it was prescribed. So getting a good sense of what has and hasn't worked can also be a clue to some of the triggers related to the pain process. So the assessment is complex. A lot of different elements need to be investigated to really have a good understanding of the pain problem that then guides the treatment plan. That's right. What tools do you think work best for assessing pain in older individuals, you know, and I'm thinking in particular about individuals who may be reluctant to report because they fear another test or, like you said, a treatment that may be unpleasant. And maybe what about special tools for individuals who have dementia and are not able to articulate what is happening to them? Do we have any scales or tools that work well here? We do. Although I don't know that any particular tool or scale is going to get at the reluctance to report or acknowledge pain, which is a big problem with a lot of older adults. You know, they believe that they should be stoic, that they should just live with pain. They don't want to bother, you know, the provider. They want them to focus on their other medical conditions. And so not reporting pain accurately is an issue, but I think that has to be addressed by education and Mm -hmm. making sure that they understand the importance of acknowledging pain because of all of the negative things that can happen if it's not addressed. But back to scales and tools. So there are a number of valid and reliable scales that have been developed for use in older adults to assess and monitor pain. And I know you can ask questions about pain severity and about function and get some information that way. But without a standard, consistent way of measuring that's used over time and by different providers, it's very difficult to judge improvements in function, in pain severity, and achievement of goals of care. So I feel strongly that Each organization or practice needs to have a set of scales that they integrate into the assessment and reassessments that occur 
on every visit with the patient. In the studies that we've done, looking at comparisons across different types of scales, most older adults prefer a word scale mm-hmm. or a verbal descriptor scale, which just categorizes the pain as to none, mild, moderate, severe. That's one simple example of a descriptor scale. There are also faces pain scales that have been validated in older adults. The older person looks at the faces and picks the one that represents how bad their pain is. We've also added a thermometer to a verbal descriptor pain scale as a way to conceptualize worsening pain and improving pain the way temperature increases or decreases. You mentioned cognitive impairment. Even older individuals with mild to moderate cognitive impairment are able to self-report their pain and its impact with simple tools and ways to communicate. So it is important to try to get self-report in all patients who have the ability to communicate. But more important than pain severity to me is gathering that information on the impact of pain. So if pain is, say, moderate, how is that affecting ability to engage in activities that are important for quality of life. Using a functional scale or an impact interference scale is one way to do that. You know, probably the most common scale that brings all this together is the brief pain inventory short Mm -hmm. form, which has simple questions about interference of pain with work, physical activity, mood, enjoyment of life. If that is integrated into a practice as a baseline measure and then used repeatedly over time, you'll have a map of what's happening with this person and how their pain is affecting their life. There are also some shorter scales, like the functional pain scale that looks at pain tolerability. The VA has developed the PEG scale, which correlates very highly with the brief pain inventory. So there are a variety of tools that are available and recommended in clinical guidelines to evaluate pain and function over time. You know, Kayla, I'm really glad that you brought out the idea of using functional assessment tools. Um, And I like to think about family members or caregivers and how they can play a role in assessing pain. Probably the best way that a caregiver can determine whether the individual's pain is is better or worse is by looking at their behavior, their demeanor, and their overall physical function. Would you agree with that? Yep, those are really good points, and that relates to how do we assess pain in people who are unable to communicate. Right. There are several strategies, and one is to be proactive, to identify conditions that we know are painful and be proactive in treating as if they're experiencing pain. Then a part of that whole process is to get information on behaviors and behavior change, and that's where the family caregiver or paid caregiver plays a really important role because they know the person best, and they're able to detect changes that a clinician may not be aware of um, when interactions are spread out over time. So engaging and empowering the caregiver to participate in recognizing pain and monitoring for changes is really critical. Absolutely. And I just have to share my anecdote. I do a lot of nursing homework. One of the classic things I'll see is they'll be discussing how the patients are doing and I'll say, how's her pain? And they'll say, oh, she's not in any pain. She's lying in bed and she seems really comfortable. And when we go and assess the patient and she's lying in bed in a fetal position, not able to move because of the pain she is experiencing. So we 
I, I agree with you that empowering caregivers to give us information is good, but we also have to educate them and keep that idea that the patient may be not moving, not talking, and not functioning because of pain. You know, related to that, Kate, we have behavioral pain scales for this population, and almost all of them require movement of the Mm -hmm. person, you know, putting them through daily activities or range of motion or turning, because since musculoskeletal pain is one of the most common causes of pain in this population, they need to be moved to actually stimulate the pain. So you are absolutely right. Observing someone who is lying in bed, um, not moving, is not a good reflection of underlying pain behaviors. Right. And when you move the patient, please observe their face and see whether or not they're grimacing. Exactly. Well, thank you for that. On the topic of assessment, when should the risk of opioid addiction or abuse be part of our pain assessment? And here we're talking again about older individuals. Yep. So assessing for risk of opioid addiction or abuse has not typically been part of the pain assessment for older adults. Given the goal of reducing risk overall, I think it may be appropriate to have a simple screen to establish potential risk for abuse or to document that there isn't risk. So in future podcasts, we're going to be talking about some simple tools that can help guide older adults and families to use opioids safely when that's an option in the treatment plan. Agree. And really, that's why we're here, isn't it? It is. So we'll talk more in detail about opioid use disorder later in our series, but let's close this podcast with some key takeaways. Do you have one or two things that you think we should summarize with, Keila? I do. So pain, particularly chronic pain, is common in older adults, and thus we need to be proactive in assessing it and developing an effective treatment plan. Older adults need a comprehensive assessment to gather the relevant information on which to base a treatment plan. And there are reliable and valid tools that help the older adult's voice be heard and so that we have a common metric for evaluating and communicating changes and improvements with treatment over time. Those are my key takeaways. And those are very good ones, Kayla. Thank you so much for having this conversation with me today. I also want to thank the audience for being with us for this podcast, and I want to encourage everyone to tune into our next podcast in the Pain Coach series, which will be Creating the Pain Treatment Plan. This podcast is part of a series. Listen to the next one, Creating the Pain Treatment Plan.